This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity with Dan Monroe. So I want to have the look at Nothing to Lose. The whole book is about the, the first part of my 3X model, the curiosity part. And in particular, how living by the value of curiosity can change the way you think. Everything from becoming more decisive to having better critical thinking skills to knowing what your values are and how to, how to live by them. That's all covered through the value of curiosity. And today we're going to have a look at what it means to live by that value and what stands in your way. Why is it that sometimes you make decisions that do not help your future? You make decisions that harm you. You make decisions to procrastinate, to hold back, to doubt yourself. Why is it that that happens, even though deep down you know it doesn't work for you? So we're going to have a look at that today. Lots of fun stuff in there. And I don't know where we're going to go exactly today, but I am going to share with you a technique for building up self-awareness and decision-making skills. Um, that's probably something you've never heard before, because I made it up. So what is having nothing to lose? I want to start by saying having nothing to lose is the exact same as having nothing to gain. Or you could say it's having everything to gain. Having nothing to lose is basically the understanding that you are already complete. It is the absence of neediness. And of course we're human, so there's never going to be an absence of neediness. But there can be a process for dealing with neediness as it occurs. And so today we're going to be having a look at how to know when neediness is happening, because it's often very subtle and very secretive, how to know when it's happening, how to overcome it, and live by your values in those moments. So ultimately, having nothing to lose is another way of saying having a decision-making process based on your values with no neediness attached. Yeah. So it might sound a little contradictory. You're a human being, you're going to have neediness. Whether you admit it to yourself or not, it's there. There's the really basic neediness around survival, the things you need to shelter yourself, to food, water, all those things you need for a basic survival. But then neediness go, grows from there. We start to need things that we don't actually require to live, but things we think we require to live. And in particular, we're going to be having a look at how nothing to lose is about winning the battle between your values, what you core in the deepness of your soul believe is the right thing for you, versus the need for instant gratification. Doing the right thing versus doing the easy thing. Doing what feels good later doing what versus doing what feels good now. Ultimately, nothing to lose is somebody who will choose the option that's going to feel good later, the one that's going to create a more satisfying, authentic, confident life. Um, and neediness chooses what's going to feel good right now, which often comes with that sacrifice later. So let's say I'm, I'm on a, a health bender, you know, I'm trying to work on my health. I've got uh, a diet that I'm sticking to, a nutrition plan that I'm sticking to, I'm exercising, and then there's a chocolate cake in front of me. Now, I'm, I'm faced with this decision. I can either ignore the chocolate cake and I'll be proud of myself tomorrow. I might feel like I missed out now. and I might feel that my salad doesn't taste quite as good in the face of this chocolate cake, but tomorrow I'll be like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't eat the chocolate cake and I'll be proud of myself and if I keep making those kind of decisions, my health will improve overall. 
or I can eat the chocolate cake now and it's going to feel great to eat it right now. It's going to feel fantastic. The sugar's going to, you know, trigger all sorts of dopamine releases in my brain. It's going to feel really comfortable. I'm going to feel like I have freedom because I get to eat whatever I want all the time. And then tomorrow I'm going to be like, fuck, I wish I hadn't eaten the chocolate cake. And then if I keep making that kind of needy decision around chocolate cake, a few months time I'll be in an unhealthy shape physically and I'll have a lot of regret and remorse about the way I live. So that's what we're looking at is the nothing to lose one is the one who's willing to lose the chocolate cake. The one who's willing to sacrifice that instant reward to do what's right. And how to create a mindset where you're constantly making the right decision for you. There will of course be some exceptional slips. And sometimes eating the chocolate cake is the right thing to do. But you know when it's not because you regret it later. So this book, Nothing to Lose, is all about that battle between your values and neediness. How to win that battle. And knowing that you're going to be fighting that fight for the rest of your life. That is never going to end. You're always going to have the temptation of instant gratification. You were born with it genetically and then you're trained by other people who believe in it. You are trained to believe that getting an instant reward with money is better than living by integrity when you do sales. You're trained to believe that getting laid is better than building a connection. You're trained to believe that doing whatever you want is better than doing what's right for you. Those are the things that you're raised by other people who are sold on the instant gratification concept as well. So I want you to just take a second right now to think of all the people who taught you and trained you as you grew up, especially in those first 10 years when you didn't have the ability to think critically or challenge any ideas. Think of the people who raised you, think of the people who trained you. How many of them were needy? How many of them believed in instant gratification and feeling good right now, as opposed to doing what's going to feel good later? Now, when I say feeling good, I want to clarify that because I don't necessarily mean pleasure. Because for some people, eating the chocolate cake is an absolutely unpleasurable sensation, yet they do it anyway. The whole time they feel guilty, they feel bad about themselves eating that cake, and yet they still do it. So one of the things about neediness is sometimes it doesn't even feel good to obey the neediness order, but there is a reward nonetheless. One of those key rewards, we're going to actually look at a whole list of those. We're going to have a look at what is instant gratification, but before I do that, I just wanted to plant the idea that instant gratification doesn't necessarily mean feeling a pleasurable sensation. As we'll explore in a minute, it can mean simply doing what you've always done, being familiar. I talk about this example a lot. I used to work with a lot of women who were in domestic violence relationships. And, uh, you know, I should probably do a warning here. I might bring up some stuff for some people watching. What was interesting about working with them, at first it really baffled me how I would do all this work with a woman to get her out of that relationship, you know, help her see how harmful it is, help her find the resources and support to safely exit the relationship. Weeks later, she'd be in another one. She'd just somehow pick a guy out of the crowd and he had happened to be abusive as well. And I couldn't ever understand this. I was like, look at all the effort we put for you to get out of the last one. And you've just gone and chosen another one again. But what I realized and what was explained to me by these women when I actually was allowing myself to be genuinely curious, I said, please, I actually want to understand. Tell me why this has happened. Help me understand. Instead of judging them, you know. 
is that they are familiar. These these women, they found guys who weren't abusive kind of terrifying because they didn't know what to expect with a guy like that. They don't know when it's going to come. They don't know what's going to happen when he gets mad. With an abusive guy, they knew. At least they understood. They knew where they stood. They knew what to expect. There was something very familiar about it. So when we talk about instant gratification, often we're talking about choosing something that is familiar. The thing we're afraid of is the unknown, the thing we can't measure, the thing we don't feel experienced in. Even a terrible situation will stick with it if we feel that we understand it. You know, And you see this all the time. Instant gratification might mean sticking with a job that sucks. Instant gratification might mean staying in a relationship that's terrible. It might mean eating food that makes you feel sick. It doesn't necessarily mean feeling good. But there's also the feeling good ones, like drug taking like meaningless sex, like making people laugh to gain approval. These are all forms of pleasurable instant gratification as well. The key here is the instant. You're feeling an instant reward of some kind in your behavior as opposed to delaying that gratification by doing what's right, which is usually an uncomfortable experience, in order to receive a reward later on. For example, if I'm in a job that sucks, it's going to be very uncomfortable for me to quit. I'm going to have to have a confrontation with my boss. I'm going to have to go through all the fear of the unknown about finding a job. I'm going to have my parents asking, why did you quit? That was such a great job, blah, blah, blah. Like I might go through that kind of experience. That's choosing a painful experience. But if later on, not only do I find a job that's a better fit for me, but I respect myself for getting out of that situation, that's the kind of reward that isn't instant. It's long-term. I've gained something at a core level here. When I, when I engage in something that is an act of respect toward myself, you kind of can't take it away from me. Whereas when I get an instant gratification, it's gone almost as soon as it started. You know, if I have casual, meaningless sex, or if I have a, you know, a big piece of chocolate cake, as soon as the sex or the chocolate cake's finished, the reward's finished too. I don't feel good about myself for very long after that. Whereas when you live by your values, the reward is sustained. And in fact, if you continue to live by your values, you, your overall baseline of satisfaction just keeps increasing. Whereas when you keep living by instant gratification, your overall baseline for satisfaction decreases. Look at any drug user. The more they use drugs, the less good feeling they get from the drugs, the more drugs they have to take, and the less satisfaction they have from life overall. I know this because I've worked with many people in rehab. So essentially, this needy instant gratification is this distraction, this temptation from the devil, you might say. So take this thing, it will feel good, or at least it will be familiar. You'll know it, you'll understand it. And you don't know that you're getting yourself into debit. You know, when you take this thing, you're actually racking up a payment for later. You're going to suffer later because of this decision, and you just don't realize it. Whereas other things, it looks like it's suffering right now to do that decision, and you know it's the right thing to do, but it's so painful to do it. And you don't realize you're stacking up a reward for later. You're going to feel good about yourself later on because of that decision, and you're going to feel good for longer. So my book, Nothing to Lose, is all about knowing when this is happening and knowing which decision is going to be best for you and having the ability to move on that decision. 
So let's have a look at what instant gratification is. I've got a an instant gratification warning list that I've put together. I'm going to go through that with you. And we're going to have a look at some common examples of what instant gratification looks like. So let me bring up this list. I'm going to do a little bit of reading for you here. So the first one, first and foremost, is physical and emotional comfort or familiarity. Yeah. So it's either a physical sensation of pleasure or it's at least something you understand. For example, um, some people do things to kind of punish themselves. You know, like I used to smoke for that reason. If I was feeling bad about myself, I'd smoke even more. I kind of like the painful feeling of the smoke going down my throat. It's like I felt like hurting myself in a way. I didn't really consciously understand it this way, but I just felt this compulsion to feel pain of some kind. But I was familiar with that. There was an emotional comfort in doing that. So it's about feeling good right here and now, even if it sacrifices feeling good later. It's something like having a binge on alcohol. You know, it feels great. The next day you get the hangover. You know, this is a real common example. Have a big piece of chocolate cake later on, you feel sick, you know. Um, now, what we'll do is we look through each of these kind of warning checklists is understanding the excuses that you come up with to justify. See, neediness comes with explanation. So when you're living by your values, it's simply the right thing to do and you know it. There's no need to justify it or explain it to yourself. But when you're making a neediness decision, you'll find this desire to explain your own behavior to yourself. You'll have a story as to why you're doing it. This in itself is a massive warning sign. I talk about this in great detail in the book. Is understanding as soon as you're explaining something to yourself, red flags should be going off. Because if you're living by your values, no explanation is really required. Just this is the right thing to do. So when you're procrastinating, you're telling yourself, oh, it isn't the right time, it's not appropriate yet, blah, blah, blah. You have to tell yourself something. The very fact that you're telling yourself something is a huge warning sign. So when we look at these, we can have a look at the excuses. So when you've got the excuses around physical comfort, you're going to talk about how you're trying to avoid something, you know, like anxiety, confusion, anger, physical pain. You might convince yourself that you're rewarding yourself for a success of some kind. You know, go to the gym and you come back like, I've earned this chocolate cake. You have to tell yourself the story to minimize the guilt you feel about the behavior. You know, I have to stay in this relationship because we've invested so much time or, you know, we've got the kids. You have to tell yourself why. I have to stay in this job because it's good money. I'm lucky to have this job. There's that story. So that physical and emotional thing is like, okay, I'm going to experience a physical or emotional pain if I don't do this. And that's my justification for doing it. You know, I'm going to feel like I'm missing out if I don't eat this piece of cake. So that's why I'll eat the cake. You know, you convince yourself that feeling good is a sign of success, that physical comfort and familiarity means you're doing well, you know, and that pain is evidence of failure. If you feel embarrassed or rejected, you failed. But if you feel accepted and validated, you've won. And this is what you tell yourself. So one of the key things with dealing with instant gratification is exceptions. What we're looking for is for you to challenge the story and the excuses that you're telling yourself. This is essentially like having your own little coach sitting on your shoulder, giving you advice and instructions. So what I'm always looking for when I start telling myself a story, I start looking for exceptions. I want to see one 
time when that story is not true. So if I'm telling myself a story about why it feels good right now and that's good enough reason to do it, I'll look for a time where either feeling good was directly related to something that harmed my life or when feeling pain was actually directly related to something that helped my life. I'm looking for that exception. So an example is going to the gym. If I go to the gym and try to do pull-ups, which I suck at, it's like this goal I'm working on. If I try to do these pull-ups, it hurts to do them. But afterwards, I feel great, you know, and, and, it, and I know if it's hurting that I'm building strength. I've tested this and measured this in the past. The more it hurts to a certain level, the stronger I get. I'm able to lift more weight the next time. I've measured this. So straight away, the excuses I've come up with about how feeling pain is bad and feeling pleasure is good, I can see an exception to that. I can also see a time where I felt really in love with someone or I was deeply in a relationship and then got crushed because they were a bad fit for me. That's a time where feeling good was actually a, a warning sign that I was over-invested in someone. So that's the first instant gratification warning, is the feeling good physically or emotionally, and having to explain it to yourself. The second one's relief from fear. Now, fear is one of the trickiest ones. I talk about this a lot in the book, because often we think of fear as being afraid, but fear's trickier than that. Fear hides behind other masks. Fear pretends to be other things, and the thing it pretends to be the most is rationality. Fear pretends to be rational reasoning. And that's why we don't feel afraid, so we don't even think we're afraid. We don't think that we're experiencing fear because we're just coming up with all these nice rational reasons. Like, I can't go talk to that person I'm attracted to because they've obviously got a partner. Rational reasoning, no sensations of fear. But the reason we don't feel a sensation of fear is because we've just relieved ourselves of it with a story, a bullshit story. So relief from fear is, is about avoiding something you're afraid of and mostly avoiding the even just the realization that you're afraid. So your excuses are all about risks that really have no solid evidence. There's nothing that's actually going to kill you, but you come up with a risk as if it would. I can't go talk to that person because then his boyfriend will come and smash me. You know, her boyfriend? Doesn't matter what you are, I guess. Um, you, you, you make this assessment of risk, which you are in no way qualified to make. And then you believe yourself. You know, I can't go for that job because um, I'll get rejected and then they'll realize I don't want this job and so they'll fire me and then I'll end up homeless. And, you know, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. So it's, it's out of my league. That's a totally bullshit thing that you made up. You have no substance for that assessment. The only way you can know if that's true is if you tried. That's the only way. And if you haven't tried yet, still come to an assumption. Then you know you're lying to yourself. You're giving yourself a story to hide the fact that you're afraid. So one of those warning signs is really to look out for, are you making a risk assessment that you're not qualified to make? Now, if I look at applying for a job, and I've applied for 200 jobs, and I think, you know what, that one's out of my league. I'll know that from experience. I'm making a rational assessment. Now, what's really interesting is by the time I've applied for 200, I'll have that nothing-to-lose mindset. Well, what's 201? I might as well swing for the fence. I'll apply for CEO when I've just started as a janitor. Who cares? That's what the nothing-to-lose mindset's like, where you've tried everything so much that you're not afraid of any of the results. You know. So when you find yourself justifying a risk assessment, an exception you can look for is a time that you were afraid 
but it went okay. A time where you were sure it was going to be a painful experience from fear, and then you actually did it anyway, and it just wasn't as bad as you thought it was going to be. The time you asked someone out, they said no, and you survived. You know, the time you applied for a job, they didn't get back to you, and you're fine now. Look for those exceptions and understand, you know, sometimes I think something's a risk, and I'm wrong. And the only way for me to know is to actually go and take that risk. Then I'll know for sure. Have a look at sometimes how things that are good for you now, you prepaid in fear and uncertainty. A great example of this is driving a car. Many of us are are vehicle drivers. And yet when we first got into a car, it was like a spaceship. We had no fucking idea what was going on. There's all these dials and handles and levers and pedals, and it was just this nightmare. Ten years later, you're driving while you're texting and eat a hamburger at the same time, using your knees to steer like it's nothing. There was a time when driving was terrifying for you, and you got through that fear, and now you're really glad you did. This is an example, the driving one's an interesting example, because why I believe we're able to get over the fear of driving is we see so many other people driving. We see so much proof that it can be done by anyone, and that gives us permission to go through the fear. Whereas when we apply for jobs or ask someone out on a date, we don't see much evidence or we don't think we see much evidence that people can do this. And so we doubt ourselves. But really, what's the difference? What is the difference between learning how to master your social anxiety versus learning how to drive a car? They're both equally unknown, terrifying things at first. And then one day they're like nothing to you if you really stick to them. Another huge instant gratification thing that will get in the way of you living by your values is effort. Wanting to avoid effort, wanting things to be hassle-free, wanting a smooth, easy ride. It's about avoiding that hard work, so your excuses will be in the too hard category. The thing looks impossible. You overwhelm yourself with the size of the thing. Uh, A great example of this is starting a business. Somebody will be like, I want to start a business, as if that's a single massive action, right? That you just go from not in business to in business fully in one single move. It seems impossible. You know, when in reality, starting a business is no one behavior. You won't be able to draw the line as to when you were in business and when you weren't. You won't know when that actually took place. You're just taking lots of actions towards independent income. So avoiding hard work, even though you haven't really tried or haven't really persisted long enough, that's the excuse. You're like, that's too hard. And you haven't really given it a good go yet. You know, if you've been doing something for five years and you solidly have not made an inch of progress, then sure, it is too hard for you, possibly. But if you haven't really even started yet and you haven't persisted long enough to have a chance at making this thing work, then you're just giving yourself the excuse of avoiding hassle. You you convince yourself that because you don't know how to do it, you can't do it. Again, it's like the car example. At one stage, you didn't know how to drive, and now you do. There's nothing you can't learn. So one of the exceptions is, again, learning, identify something you learn from scratch that you put a lot of effort into and you had no real natural talent. That's a huge one. We often give ourselves the excuse, you know, I've got no natural talent, therefore I can't do this. When in reality, natural talent doesn't mean shit. It's just a slight advantage at the start. You know, like I, I do dancing now, uh, zook dancing. I am by far not a natural dancer, you know. But I've won competitions and stuff since then. I just had to learn it all from scratch with no natural advantage. And that's fine. You know, I had to learn all the bits that somebody who's natural got to start with. So be it. It was a bit more effort 
than somebody who's natural dancing. Fine. I put in more effort. I can see that as an exception. So next time I look at something and tell myself it's too hard, I'm like, I've been here before and I got through it, which means my excuse that it's too hard is not a real excuse. You know, I know that instant gratification is trying to interfere with my values when that excuse comes up. Um, the next one, validation and social acceptance. This is a huge distraction for people. So many people will sacrifice doing what's right because it will be disapproved of or they perceive it will be disapproved of. I mean, this may be the number one thing I coach people on, you know, this desire to seek approval without even realizing that's what you're doing. It's one of the most difficult ones in terms of living by your values is to know the difference between when you want to live by your values versus virtues, which is what other people tell you your values should be. And it can become really confusing, especially when you think living by your values will harm someone. Like if I'm honest with them, it will hurt their feelings. We don't want to harm someone. That seems to go against the values too. So we're stuck. Like, I want to be honest, but I don't want to harm someone. It seems like honesty and compassion are fighting against each other. The truth underneath that situation is you don't want to have to deal with their upset feelings. You don't want to be uncomfortable. You actually do want to be honest, and it would be compassionate of you to be honest. If you give them the truth, then maybe they can change in a way that will help them. At least they'll know what you're thinking and you're not deceiving them. That's compassion and honesty at the same time. If you hid that from them, not only are you being dishonest, but you're being incompassionate, if that is a word. You're not allowing them to see a perspective on themselves that might prevent them from harming their own life. Like a great example is quite often we won't give someone feedback because they'll cry about it. And yet... The feedback we're giving them is something that will serve them powerfully if it really did help them. You know, if someone's at work and they're just being really absent-minded and and then doing so like gossiping about people behind their back and, you know, getting a name as a, as a gossip, it might be really uncomfortable and it might hurt their feelings to say, hey, you know, you're a bit of a gossipy bitch, to be honest. They might not like it, you for that, but if you don't tell them, they might never be able to progress their career because they're known as the gossiper. And they don't realize they're known as that. So often we use social approval as an excuse to avoid being uncomfortably honest. You know, it's about avoiding upsetting, hurting, offending. It's believing that you prioritize, you know, others over your own success, that somehow that's a virtuous, noble thing to do. Uh, and in particular, you take responsibility for how other people feel. You think it's your job for them to feel good. You know, and you tell yourself this and put yourself in a position where you have to try and seek their approval. One thing you can do to look for an exception here is look at something you're currently involved in that some people in the world will disapprove of, but you don't care. Right? So maybe you're artistic in some way. Like if you're a musician, you know for sure that there are certain people that like your genre of music and there are others who fucking hate it. Right? Like I play in a metal band. It is a small niche, old old heavy metal, you know, and particularly our type of metal. Uh, there's only like three people in the whole world that like it. Not even we don't even like it. You know, um, there's only a small group of people who like it, which means a lot of people hate it, and I mean passionately hate it. Like you put it on in the car and they want to get out of the car and walk, hate it. But I don't care about that because I love the music so much, and that's what I'd think of as an exception to validation. I'm sh I can see that there's an area of my life where I'm happy for people to disapprove of me because I feel passionate about it. It shows that I don't actually need approval. 
that I'm okay with people being offended by something and leaving them to deal with it themselves rather than having to be the one who fixes them. You know, and even if you don't have anything, have a, just an understanding that right now, just because of the way you are, some people hate you. It's as simple as that. If you just look at the way you are, ask yourself, in the whole world with all the different cultures and stuff, who hates me just because of the way I am? This was a big wake-up call for me. I was such a people-pleaser for most of my life when I realized that there were actually some people who hate people-pleasers. And this is like really hard for a people-pleaser because they're like, but the whole point is so that no one hates me. And then you realize there must be some people that hate me because I'm like this. And that was a big wake-up call for me. It was something that helped me make some real big changes in my life was actually getting to the point where I started to ask myself, if everyone's, you know, if someone's going to hate me regardless of how I am, I might as well work on being a way that I like rather than being the way I am, which is something I don't like. I'm like, even when everyone else likes me, I don't, you know, so I might as well get to a point where I do. So there, there's, there's a few of the, of the instant gratification kind of temptations that are going to get in your way. There's plenty more. I won't go through them all today. Um, some examples are trying to keep what you already know. So the familiar feeling, trying not to challenge your ideas. And, and underneath that, keeping your identity. So if you see yourself as something, trying to avoid anything that will challenge that, that's a huge one for people. Um, financial security, that's a big one. Uh, it's a total myth. But uh, if you say to yourself, I need money or I don't have enough money, it's a huge instant warning instant gratification warning, and following instead of leading. So letting other people telling you how to live using that comfortable way of living rather than taking the risk to figure it out for yourself. So yeah, so those are some of the warning signs and some of the exceptions you can look for to help you break down your dependence, your clinginess to them. The idea of finding an exception is every time you find an exception to the bullshit rule that you made up in your head, then you know the rule's not true. Because for a rule to be true, there must be no exceptions. So if, if you can find an exception, then you know that you're lying to yourself. The thing you told yourself, I can't do this because I have, don't have enough money. And you find a single exception to a time in your life where you didn't have enough money, but you did it anyway. Then you know that not having enough money is a lie. And you're hiding a deeper neediness, a deeper truth from yourself. The thing about instant gratification, the thing about that neediness, is it gives us something to lose. Lose money, validation, comfort. We go from having nothing to lose to having something to lose. And the key thing is here is to understand that the neediness created the neediness. And what I mean by that is before the neediness happened, you had nothing to lose. So if you're home alone, you've got no social validation to lose. You turn up at the party and you go, I hope people like me. And now you've got something to lose. But the thing is, you had nothing to lose to begin with. That is actually your complete state that's how you always are it's just the myth you tell yourself that gives you the illusion that you could lose something you can't lose anything you're already complete and my book nothing to lose is all about that how to understand or believe that you're already complete through evidence how to come to that belief and therefore be able to make decisions where you're just doing it for your own curiosity you just want to see what happens you just want to find out more you want to build your wisdom you're not looking to lose anything. Anything that happens is a gain because you'll always learn something. So 
I'm going to read a little bit from the book now. I was going to do a bit more, but we're kind of running low on time there. I'm going to read a bit from the book and uh, talk a little bit about, for those of you who want to pre-order the book, um, some of the bonuses and packages that come with it. But I just wanted to read actually the, I was going to read the preface. Um, actually, I'm going to find a better, there's a better section I want to read to you guys. It's a chapter on confidence. Uh, let me just find it here. Chapters. Here we are. So this is called. Uh, this is chapter five. Chapter five is called "Fuck the Rules." So I'll have a little go through that uh, with the time that we've got remaining. So chapter five: "Fuck the Rules." There are many technical difficulties for creating and maintaining authenticity. First, you can't really predict what you'll need to do in the future to be authentic because you'll have changed significantly by then, as will your circumstances. And second, there's no identity, if there is no identity and structure to inform your decision making, how are you supposed to know what it means to be authentic at any given time? Now this is where the wonderful value uh, concept of values makes an appearance. Discovering your core values and learning what it means to live by them will build you into a person who's simultaneously changing while re remaining consistent to a foundation. Like a kite with a long string that's tied to a pole, free to maneuver without getting lost. It seems to be a paradox at first, but bear with me as we explore values and how they're implemented in a practical behavioral way. Now, as far as I can tell with the endless case studies I've experimented with, values do not change for an individual. They remain consistent throughout a person's life. It's just my opinion. However, the actions taken to live by these values and the importance and relevance of any one particular value at any given time are subject to constant change. Let's look at an analogy for this, building a house. At any given time, you're focused on a different part of the house, using different methods to build and doing a different job every day. But no matter what, you're always building. Therefore, the value for putting together a house is building while the methods and area of focus fluctuate according to what is most helpful right now. So this is how something like building can be cons consistent yet simultaneously changing all the time. And that's how a value works. So the explore phase, the curiosity phase that this book is all about, is where you answer two important questions. The first one, which value is the most appropriate to guide the actions you're about to take, given the circumstances and context you're in? So which value is most suited to the situation right now? And second, what behavior would be an honest best attempt to live by that chosen value? Answering these questions and acting on that answer is the essence of having nothing to lose. What's the most important value? How do I act by it? Now, values are easily confused with many other concepts, which is why people struggle to find authenticity. We're misled by societal influences to believe that we're living by our values when we're actually doing the complete opposite. We're deceived into thinking our decisions are aligned with what is right through misunderstanding concepts such as virtues, goals, and outcomes. Now, for that reason, and because of my overarching theory that you already know deep down what it means for you to be authentic, the best way to learn your values is to first unlearn what you've been manipulated into believing about values and neediness. What remains after that will be a stronger understanding of how to live by your values, how to be authentic, 
and therefore how to be yourself. So let's have a look. The first thing I want to look at is the difference between values and virtues. Now virtues are like laws. They are created when an authority of some kind decides to prioritize certain values over others and dictates guidelines as to how these values should be expressed. Religion, law, company policy are all examples of systems based on virtues. For example, the Christian, Judaic, and Islamic churches tell you the rules you must live by and how to live by them through what are called the Ten Commandments. In these systems, we see an authority figure proclaim that there is a unified agreement on which values are the most important, that's the commandments, and how each value should manifest through behavior, known as how to live virtuously. Now, the first most significant distinction between values and virtues is that a virtue requires the agreement of others while living by your values does not. So virtues also differentiate from values in two other important ways. Number one, no one value is the most important. No one value is consistently more important than any other. Importance is only relevant to specific real-time context. For example, the value of courage may be more important than the value of caring during a situation that requires you to stand up for yourself. But overall, caring is just as important for a balanced and meaningful life. Perhaps you've stood up for yourself, then the other person has a reaction, and you can help them come to terms with their reaction. So you go from courageous to caring in a single interaction. Now, values require you to explore the current context and figure out the best value fit. Number two, living by values is adaptable to context. How you live by the chosen value is an in-the-moment decision, not requiring a pre-planned or pre-agreed action, though that can be helpful too sometimes. So sometimes courage means standing up for yourself, other times it means walking away, and there are an infinite, infinite number of other possible ways to engage in the value of courage. There are no rules as to how you can live by courage. As long as the actions t- you take include you choosing to feel afraid, sacrificing comfort for integrity, then you're living courageously. So let's have a look. I'll skip through a little bit, actually. If you agree with the notion that confidence must be self-contained and self-regulated, you'll need to let go of the concept of living in a virtuous way. It does not mean you have to abandon your society or church. It's just about coming up to your own understanding as to how you should be living. Gaining society's approval does not align with authenticity or confidence, and it's not a requirement for enjoyment of life, which you might not agree with yet, but bear with me here. I did an experiment once where I stopped being nice to people. I'd just finished reading No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Robert Glover, and had decided to see what would happen if I simply stopped trying to help people for a while, because I recognized that helping people was quite toxic. It was unbelievable. Of all the terrible consequences I imagined in preparation for this experiment, none were even close to the shock of the actual result, which was nobody even noticed. It turns out my help wasn't really being asked for in a majority of situations. I was actually imposing help on others without their permission. I was actually feeling guilty for imposing on these people, yet being helpful was a virtue I had lived by for unquestioningly my entire life. So nowadays, I only help people who ask for it. I'll read one other small part from this chapter. I want to have a look at the difference between values and rules. A rule is something you use to explain your perceived limitations of the world, 
something that dictates options for behavior and restricts what you can do. Now, I don't use the word law because it has a different connotation. Breaking the law is based on a communal agreement, usually has measurable punishments when caught. Breaking rules, which you've created for yourself alone, feels like a punishment only if you allow yourself to be convinced that you are wrong. So if we got the laws of physics, for example, they describe something we cannot consciously gain control over, whereas rules outline a completely subjective structure that only exists inside your mind. So simply put, there's not much you can do about gravity, but whether or not you walk up to a stranger and say hi cannot really be prevented by anything in the physical world. Only your internal rules can stop that from happening. And this is where we start to see what a rule is. So rules are another example of how your brain likes to lazily simplify a complex world by pretending there is a basic understanding of how you can and cannot interact. These rules appear to have good reasoning for their existence, yet they have a more detrimental impact on your ability to enjoy life than just about anything else. Rules have that short-term neediness reward effect of making life seem simple and understandable. However, like any short-term reward system, there is a long-term punishment. And that punishment is slavery. For a rule to exist, freedom must be sacrificed. Rules attack an abundance of choice and reduce it to a few options. In your brain's attempt to keep things simple, it imprisons you with rules. Some rules are helpful. Look both ways before you cross the road. It's a useful survival rule to follow, and it's unlikely to sacrifice your integrity. The same applies to rules like don't murder innocent strangers. These aren't the kind of rules we're talking about. The kind of rules that really harm you are the ones like don't rock the boat. It's shallow to be attracted to someone before you get to know them. And if you don't think you'll be able to do it perfectly, don't bother starting it. These are the rules that harm us. So virtues are like publicly accepted and understood rules. But I've separated rules as its own category because most of the rules holding you back have very little to do with publicly agreed upon evidence. If you break a virtue in, say, a church setting, you might be immediately punished or shamed by the congregation. However, when you break a rule that you created all by yourself, there will often be no evidence that anyone else even noticed. They might notice that you held back or missed an opportunity, but most of the time you'll be suffering completely on your own. So perfectionists are a great example of the suffering caused through living by rules. Ironically, while some people call themselves perfectionists, their inability to let go of small imperfections leads them to mediocre completion standards and frequent procrastination. So it's pretty hard to get something finished or even started when that rule in your head is saying, get this perfectly right or everyone will think you're a loser. Even high performers who achieve impressive results are often unable to enjoy their successes as their mind constantly punishes them with, it could have been better. We live by our rules and we think we're being authentic. We even congratulate ourselves on our ability to follow our own rules, never stopping to ask whether the rules should be tested or challenged for truthfulness. So as we'll look at it in more detail later in the book, an effective way to build confidence is strategically set about discovering and breaking all of your rules. Like chipping away at the walls of your prison, each day you'll slowly increase the amount of freedom in your mind. So I'll stop the reading there. But what I want to emphasize is, when we're talking about instant gratification and neediness, start having a look at the rules that you're following. What do you tell yourself you have to do, you must do, you should do? And seek to break those rules to figure out what you actually want to be doing. 
So I really appreciate you guys spending time with me here today. Um, if you're keen to pick up a copy of the book, nothingtolose.brojo.org. And I will see you next time um, for Brojo Online.